It's good to see you this morning. I am always looking forward to sharing time with our church family, whether it be here in the worship center or in Liberty Hill or in the gym venue. It's always a great time to gather and worship together and to respond to God's word. When we open God's word in a moment and we read his word and we seek to understand what it means, we are hearing from the Lord a word of instruction, encouragement, challenge for our church family. This is the word from God that is supposed to carry us through our week, faithfully following Christ as a church family. So listen as we dig into God's word today. Imagine what it would be like if you were standing in a valley surrounded by mountains on both sides, maybe in the cool of the morning, and you were standing there along with thousands of other people. Imagine standing there in that natural amphitheater of that valley and looking over to your left and seeing a mountain there with a hundred thousand plus people standing on the mountainside, looking over to your right there and looking and seeing on that side a mountainside and over a hundred thousand people on that side. And here you've been gathered together as the people of God thinking about what it will be like to enter into the promised land, the land that God has secured for you, that he has promised for you. And as you enter into the land, Joshua, the leader, has gathered everyone in this natural amphitheater to imprint upon their minds and hearts the significance of this moment. 20,000 Levites gathered with Joshua right in the middle of that valley. And they began to cry out. They first began crying out the things that would happen to the people of God if they failed to follow God when they entered into the promised land. And every time that Joshua and the Levites would cry out a curse that would come upon the people of God if they failed to follow God when they entered the promised land, the people on the mountains would cry out, Amen. So imagine... 20,000 people crying out the promises of God in the form of curses and the form of blessings. And after every one, this resounding amen coming off of both mountainsides and shaking the valley. The very first curse that was uttered. Do not create an idol. And the loud amen would shake. They went through all the curses, they went through all the blessings, and after every curse and every blessing, the amen sounded, yes, we believe that, yes, that is true. When it came to the end of that time, Joshua and the Levites said this final phrase, do not go after other gods. Joshua told the people, I am placing before you today life and death. You choose to follow God in the land of promise and you will live. You choose to go after other gods. Surely you will perish. 
Now fast forward all the way to the end of time as we know it. In the moments right before the final judgment of God. That's where we are. Revelation chapter 14 starting in verse 6. Revelation chapter 14 starting in verse 6. I'm going to read this passage through verse 13 and stop after every little section in this passage. Give a statement of explanation. We'll work our way all the way through verse 13. So let's start with verse 6. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. John sees a vision of three angels and a voice from heaven. This first angel is flying through the heavens proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to every single person on the face of the earth, every nation, every tribe, every people, proclaiming the gospel and calling for the world to turn to fear God and worship Him because the moment of final judgment has come. Once again, in the midst of the judgment of God, we see the display of the mercy of God. God is sending forth one final time the message of the gospel, admonishing and exhorting the world to turn to Jesus Christ, a display of incredible mercy, a clear invitation for the world to turn to follow Christ while there is still opportunity to trust Christ, and an encouragement to those who have decided to follow Christ in perhaps the most difficult period of time in the history of the world to keep on trusting Christ, even in the face of death. The first angel sends out the gospel, a picture of a warning, an invitation, and incredible encouragement. Let's read verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. This is the first time we encounter the city Babylon. We will encounter the city Babylon, the empire Babylon, several times through the remainder of Revelation. Babylon has a deep and long history in the Bible. You can go all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis and you can read about the Tower of Babel. That's where it all began. And the people on the face of the earth began to build a tower as if to say, we do not need God. 
And ever since that construction and that city and that empire began to be built, all through the scripture you can see it culminating in this picture here that we're introduced to in Revelation 14. The city of Babylon is far more than just a city. It's a picture of a world that has gone into complete rebellion against God, has embraced idolatry in the form of every kind of evil and wickedness known to the face of the earth. And the certain judgment of rebellion against God is so sure that the angel declares that it has already happened. Even though Babylon at this point is still continuing in rebellion to God, the angel says the certainty of God's judgment is so sure that you might as well count that judgment to have already happened. Babylon will. Verse 9, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. If you drink the wine of the immorality of Babylon, you will drink the wine of God's great wrath. Let's read verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. That is one heavy passage. Perhaps one of the more unsettling images in all of Revelation. As I considered standing before you today, reading that passage, I really wondered how in the world I could convey the reality of that image of judgment. It is so unsettling. And so what are we to make of this? 
What are we to understand this morning from a passage such as this? You remember back in Revelation 13, when the beast from the earth recruits the people from the earth to build an image of the beast from the sea. And the beast from the sea is stood up in front of the world. And the beast, the image, the idol of the beast of the sea stood up in front of everybody. And the beast from the earth has the ability to cause that idol to actually look like it's alive so that an idol crafted by the hands of people is now speaking as if it has life. And the people see what they have never seen before. No one has ever seen an idol crafted from the hands of men come to seem alive. And the people begin to worship the idol. And they give themselves to the worship of the idol. In fact, they take from the beast a mark that says, we are the people who have given ourselves to worship the idol. They take a beast on their right hand or the mark on their right hand or on their forehead and they identify as the ones who belong to the beast. And we will bow down to the idol that has now shown us what life is really about. And they begin to, because of the mark of the ones who worship the idol, exchange goods. They're able to now buy food and water where previously, if you did not choose to worship the idol, you couldn't get food. They now escape the wrath of the beast because if you didn't take the mark of the beast and bow down to the idol where you could buy food and water, you would be killed for not having taken the mark. The wrath of the beast will be poured out on you. And so the people have found and discovered that through worshiping the beast, they can actually have what they need for life. They are safe from the wrath of the beast. They are protected and they are given life. And they can look around and see that everyone who does not bow down and worship the idol is dying. Do you see what's happening? They are making a decision to worship. And the decision they make to worship leads them to believe that that decision to worship the idol has resulted in them having life. Whereas those who did not make the decision to worship the idol are dying. But we know because of Revelation 14 that they cannot escape the truth of God's word. Psalm 115 verse 8 says that those who make idols become like the idols they make. So let's think about that for a second. The people in Revelation 14, they build, in Revelation 13, they build an idol. And that idol is as dead as a rock. And then the beast of the earth gives the idol what appears to be the ability 
to demonstrate life. The idol's able to speak, nothing they've ever seen before. But we know that inside that idol is emptiness, even though there is an appearance of life. That idol is as dead as dead can be, and the life that that idol appears to have is simply nothing more than appearances. So what happens with the people who bow down to the idol? They embrace an appearance of life that leads them to complete emptiness. They become just like the idol they worship. But it's far worse than that. They don't just end up empty. They end up with the judgment of God falling upon them. The description of God's judgment here is absolutely terrifying. You know, every description of God's wrath in the scripture, you start back in Genesis and you see the judgment or the wrath of God fall when Adam and Eve fall into sin. There is judgment that happens there. Now, there's displays of mercy, but there's judgment, no question. And it continues to occur throughout all descriptions of of the Bible. You see pictures of the judgment or the wrath of God coming. Now, what you see through all the Bible is a diluted form of God's wrath. It's God's wrath that has been mixed with a heavy dose of, Of God's mercy. So that you can trace the display of God's wrath through all the scripture. And you will again and again and again see evidence of God's mercy on display in the midst of his wrath. You see it right here happening in Revelation 14. The the declaration of the gospel right here at the final hour. But God says here that when the wrath of God falls for the final time. It will no longer be diluted. The undiluted wrath of God means there is no more mercy. All that's left for those who drink the immoralities of idolatry under the guise of Babylon the Great will experience the undiluted wine of God's wrath and they will drink it into the full so that they will experience torment forever and ever. And the Lamb of God who once stood over them, offering them mercy and salvation, now stands over them with the final indictment of guilt. And he pours out his wrath on them. And they never, ever will have that decision overturned. It is at that point that they will understand that with their decision to worship the idol came an unimaginable price. Do you know that everyone decides to worship? Everybody. Every single person on the face of the earth makes a decision to worship Something. And with the decision to worship, 
whatever it is you decide to worship will come a cost. You know, the decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior carries a cost, right? This passage actually helps us understand a little bit about the cost related to following Jesus. We should not miss the fact that every decision to worship bears a cost. The cost of following Jesus here in this passage is, I think, summarized very well in verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. You know what the cost of following Jesus Christ is for you and me? Keeping the commands and keeping our faith. You know why that's a cost? Because we have been told again and again the promises and the power and the grace and the love, and the goodness, and the faithfulness of God, and we know that we have been brought near as his friends, and that we belong to him, and that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and that he has the power to turn and change anything and everything for his glory and our benefit. We know who he is, we know what he has said, and the cost in following Jesus is the decision to wait For him to do everything he says he will do. We have to keep on keeping the commandments. We have to keep on striving to keep the faith. We have been told everything that he is, everything that he will do. And as we live in this life, we do not yet experience all that he has promised. We have to wait on his return to have him show us all that he has promised. There's coming a day when he'll fulfill all his promises, but we have to wait until that day. And you know as well as I know that waiting on Jesus Christ to return is oftentimes very much filled with suffering. It's hard. It's difficult. This world and this this experience we have in this life is filled with hardship and difficulty and we know that at any point Jesus Christ could change it. I'm struggling with this. He could overcome it. I'm dealing with this difficulty. He could change it. I've experienced this deep sorrow from loss. He could have prevented it and one day he'll fix my loss. I know all of those things but the reality is that right now on this side of heaven we have to keep the faith. And that is hard. Like every Sunday, some of you come in here and you think to yourself, I don't know how in the world I made it in here today, but if God doesn't work in me this morning in a special way, I don't know how I can keep the faith next week. Because it is challenging and difficult. It costs a great deal to follow Christ when following Christ means keeping the commandments and keeping the faith even though we wait. Here's the perseverance of the faith of the saints who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. That is a tremendous cost. And you know what makes that such a difficult challenge for us? 
A person who decides to follow, to worship anything and everything but Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, the cost related to that decision to worship anything and everything but Jesus seems relatively low. And so many times, the immediate payback, the immediate return of making the decision to worship anything and everything but Jesus Christ seems relatively high. The immediate cost of not worshiping Jesus seems relatively low. The immediate payback of not worshiping Jesus can seem relatively high. But we know that the ultimate cost not worshiping Jesus is unimaginably high. And the ultimate return of not worshiping Jesus is far worse than just death. And when we decide to follow Jesus Christ, the cost of following Jesus Christ can oftentimes seem so very high. And when we decide to worship Jesus and worship Him alone, the, the immediate payback, the immediate return of that decision to worship Jesus Christ with everything I am oftentimes can seem relatively low. That creates a tremendous challenge for us that's really well pictured here in Revelation 14. And you know what Jesus Christ wants us to see? That in the midst of that kind of contrast, where it seems like those who decide not to worship Jesus pay very little cost and get a great return, and those who decide to follow Christ have a tremendous cost and little immediate return, He says to us something absolutely unbelievable. Verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. Did you know there's only two times in all the book of Revelation that the Spirit of Christ actually makes a statement? I suspect we should pay close attention to what the Spirit wants us to see is coming from Him. And so the Spirit says, yes, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now in this passage of Revelation, we are able to see two significant encouragements that should enable us to pay the price of worshiping Christ no matter what the price is this side of heaven because we should know it's the far better price. And here it is. There's a biblical truth unveiled here in Revelation. Those who worship idols become like idols. Did you know there's a contrasting biblical truth? that we will see fleshed out through the rest of Revelation. 
those who worship Jesus become like Jesus. You know why you can stay with it, you can hang in there, you can cling to Christ no matter what the cost, this side of heaven, because as you cling to him, as you keep the commandments, his blessing is that you worship him, you become like him. And so what fills your heart is joy. What fills your life is hope. What fuels your life is peace and joy. And what, what strikes your heart in the midst of every difficulty is the person of Christ who's conforming you to his image so that you get a taste every single day in the midst of the difficulty of a little bit more of who you were created to be. You worship him. You become like him. And that is a huge blessing that we get to experience in the midst of paying the price. In addition to that, we have his promise. He makes one very clear right here. It's one of the seven beatitudes of Revelation. We already experienced one back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This is the second one. And this one says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. A promise is given to those living in the worst of times who are likely taking the last breath on this earth they will ever take, who are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit says, blessed are you who have died in Christ. Because you are resting. You will enter into the rest of God. Now contrast that with those who worship the beast. What happens to them? They will never rest. Night and day. They will experience torment. But the promise to God to those who worship Christ, no matter what the price, is that one day you will enter into his rest forever. I love what's happening here in Revelation 14 because we're reminded that God is the creator of all things. The first angel that flies over says, fear God, worship him, the creator of everything. We're reminded of God's creative work. And then we are told the promise to those who keep the faith in Jesus Christ. They will rest forever. That should immediately cause us to think there's something going on here. Because back in Genesis chapter 2, God created all things in six days. There was day and there was night. Creation, day and night. And then he came to the seventh day. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 said that on the seventh day, God rested. That's it. There's no statement of day and night. There's no, there's no boundaries around the seventh day. It's just God rested from his creation. What's going on on the seventh day for God? Did God wear himself out? Is God like taking a nap on the seventh day? No. Simply means that God ceased from his creation work 
and now has entered into his rest where he's sustaining his creation such that he might accomplish redemption. So the rest of God is the time God has allotted for accomplishing redemption so that he might bring his creation back into a right relationship with him and worship him. And he has given us a Sabbath day so that we might every single week focus our attention on worshiping him, receiving a taste in the family of God of what is coming when Jesus comes again. So we might, we might be reminded every single week that there is a, an eternal presence of God we have yet to taste, but it is coming. And when Jesus comes, we will rest we will rest from our battle with sin. You will not ever be tempted of sin again. You will rest from the deplorable issues of death that we have to experience this side of heaven. We will not be sorrowful again because of the sting of death. Every tear will be wiped away and we will rest from sorrow. We will be alive once and for all and forever, Jesus Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he will strip away this old body that's scarred with sin and marred with idolatry. And he will give me a brand new body that will in perfection live for his glory on a brand new earth that is not broken, that is perfect in every way. And we will live a perpetual, eternal rest of joy, peace, and life. He's coming again. And we will enter into rest. And forever we will have what our hearts long for. He says their labors will follow with them. The cost of following Jesus Christ will follow each of us into eternity. You know what that means? That if you've suffered because you've followed Jesus Christ, the cost of that labor will receive its reward. And you will one day say, it was more than worth it. If you have paid a price in your workplace because you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ and you have less promotion and you've let, had less gains temporarily because of decisions you've made to follow Christ, the cost of your labor will one day be rewarded. If you're deciding right now, every day that you're walking this side of heaven, you're deciding, I'm going to love my spouse. Even when my spouse does not return love to me because Christ has loved me. Do you know that's the picture the Bible presents of marriage? That we decide to love our spouse no matter what our spouse does in return to us because God first loved us. Do you know if you make the decision, and this is very difficult, to love your spouse even if your spouse never loves you because Christ has loved you, the cost of your labor of following Christ will receive reward. And you will not regret the years of hardship in following Christ. 
If following Christ for you means that you actually lose your life for following Christ, the cost of your labor will find its reward in Jesus and you will have no regret for giving your life. In 1636, in Holland, people began to find a lot of interest in tulip bulbs, flower bulbs. You know what I'm talking about. They were imported from another area of the world, and the people in Holland began to really get excited about having tulip bulbs and having a variety of tulips in their yards, apparently. And they got really excited about certain varieties, types of tulip bulbs. And before you know it, people began to go crazy about getting tulip bulbs. It's known in history as tulip mania. And the reason it's known as tulip mania is because people were selling their possessions. They were selling lands. They were selling houses. They were doing whatever they could to buy certain tulip bulbs because everybody needed tulips. And if you really wanted to be somebody in Holland, you had to have a certain kind of tulip bulb. And so you were willing to do anything to get it. At the height of the tulip mania, tulip bulbs were being sold for five times the average yearly salary. Now imagine going down to Home Depot and saying, I'd like to get a flower bulb. What kind of varieties you got? Oh, we got this one. It's going to run you about $400,000. That's the one I want. And you go home and you sell your house to get it. That's what was happening in Holland. Tulip mania. It lasted a little over a year and you know what's coming, right? The tulip bulb bubble burst. And people who had given their lives, their possessions, every effort for a tulip bulb were destroyed because of their desire for a tulip bulb and all it represented. Now here we are hundreds of years later And from our vantage point, we got to say that is ridiculous, right? How in the world could they have done that? You know what Revelation 14 is? It's a point of perspective. Jesus Christ has given us the opportunity to see from the perspective of the end of time. So that in seeing what only he can see, we might not make decisions to give our lives for something even more ridiculous than a tulip bulb. You you know where we live right now? Do, Do you know where we live? We live in tulip mania. That's our world. Why don't I say that? Because our world strives to live as if there is no God, and if there is one, he's not relevant. Our world strives to do whatever is right in its own eyes. We live in the middle of tulip mania, and it's hard to see it. You know, if you lived back in 1636 and you were caught up in that, I bet you'd have a hard time seeing what was going on. But hundreds of years later, we can see it clearly, and God has shown us clearly what sometimes we can miss living in this world. Everyone worships, and there is a cost to be paid. We better choose to pay the right price. 
And if we will choose to worship Jesus and we will keep the faith, no matter what the cost, one day Jesus will come. And in that moment we will realize that Jesus was the only one who paid a real price. This is the perseverance of the saints.